Okay, um, this morning we're going to uh, continue our series in Philippians. Um, so it says in Philippians, uh, chap- we're going to read uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1, uh, I think, through to 16. Um, but before I begin, I want to tell you a story uh, about mountain climbing. Now, <clears throat> I've never been mountain climbing, but from what I've heard, it's not a very easy business. In fact, mountains are some of the most inhospitable places uh, on earth. Um, this here is a picture of Mount Everest, which is 29,000 feet high. Um, and uh, it's estimated, it's so difficult to climb. It's estimated that on the slopes of Mount Everest there's at least 120 bodies still unrecovered from people that have died attempting to climb it. Um, Now between 1920 uh, and 1952 there were seven major expeditions to try and climb this mountain. Um, And they all failed, every single one of them failed. Uh, But on six of those occasions um, there was a Sherpa whose name was Tenzing Norgay. Okay, uh, and he was uh, known as the guy with the third lung because he had an ability to climb mountains tirelessly carrying great loads. So the, as a Sherpa, you basically, your job was to literally carry the stuff up the mountains. Now, in 1953, he was hired uh, by a British expedition to be the lead Sherpa for uh, an expedition. Um, And so he was responsible for organising all the food, the supplies and the porters. Now, to get two men to the summit of the mountain, right, this is just to get two men to climb to the summit of the mountain, right, they needed 2.5 tonnes of food. And they had to get that 2.5 tonnes of food Right, delivered by hand across 180 miles of Himalayan ridges, right, uh, with bridges and rivers to cross just to get it to base camp. Right, 100, imagine that 180 miles carrying st- 2.5 tons of stuff by hand. It's just incredible, really, isn't it? And it took nearly 300 men and women to complete the task. Now that was just to get them to base camp. Right, that's just to get to the bottom of the actual mountain. From that point on, there was 40 Sherpa port, uh, Sherpas who would then carry the stuff up the, next, the actual mountain. But only, in the end, it was only actually Tenzing and three others who had the skill and the strength to climb to the highest camps near the summit. Right? And so Tenzing said this, he says, you do not climb a mountain like Everest by trying to race ahead on your own or by competing with your comrades. You do it slowly and carefully by unselfish teamwork. Certainly I wanted to reach the mountain top myself. That was the thing I had dreamed of my whole life. But if the lot fell to someone else, I would take it like a man and not like a crybaby, for that is the mountain way. And so what happened in 1953, there were two climbers, um, that's the first pair of climbers that went up, a guy called Tom uh, uh, Bordillon and Charles Evans, and they attempted to climb the, the, to the, get to the very summit, but they actually failed, all right, and so they had to come back down. Uh, and then it was the second pair, which was uh, these two, uh, which was Tenzing Norway, and anyone, bonus prizes for who else the other man was? Sorry, Hunt, no, wrong answer. Edmund Hillary, who was a New Zealander, okay? And um, uh, these were the two that eventually made the climb and made it to the summit. And Tenzing said this about uh, Bordillon and Evans. He said, they were worn out, sick with exhaustion, and of course terribly disappointed. 
but they still did everything they could to try and advise us and help us. And I thought to myself, yes, this is how it is on the mountain. That is how mountain makes men great. For where would Hillary and I have been without the others? Without the climbers who had made the route and the Sherpas who had carried the loads, it was only without the sacrifice of them all that we were able to have our chance at the top. And so on May 29th, 1953, Tenzing Norgay and Edmund Hillary accomplished what no other human ever had. They stood on the summit of Everest, the world's highest peak. You know, and, and the ability to climb the mountain, bear in mind at that time there was no decent equipment like there is now, all right, uh, it is a picture of this heart of unity and purpose of mind, right, that brings about an accomplishment that was incredibly difficult to achieve. And this is the focus of this morning's passage when we come to Philippians, is that God has called us as a church to a task and the way that the Lord wants us to achieve it is by being of one mind, being focused on what God has called us to do. And so I'd like us to look at this passage and I'd, if you have a Bible it would be great for you to open your Bibles uh, and work through it because we're going to work through it literally section by section so it's very easy for you to follow this morning. We're not going anywhere else, we're just going to stay in this passage but I've put it on the screen anyway. So Philippians chapter 2 uh, verses 1 to 16. Let's read it together. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind and having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count it equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. Uh, Oh, sorry. Uh, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run or labour in vain. And so this is the passage that we're going to look at this morning. Um, and so I want us to start right at the very beginning, right with the very first word, so, so, or therefore. 
So we remember Simon preached last week uh, from Philippians and, and Pat had preached the week before. And when we read the letters of Paul, they are literally, they're continuous kind of uh, musings of thought. Does that make sense? So it's not like, you know, we like to read scriptures in isolation. We read one scripture. But actually Paul, when he wrote, wrote like the whole thing as one long kind of thought. And so he's been talking in the previous chapter about the fact that even though the Philippians were really worried about his, his mental well-being, they were worried if he was discouraged because he couldn't preach and he was maybe unhappy because he was in prison, right? He says to them, no, don't worry, it's okay. I love being in prison. God's got me here. I don't mind if I live or if I die, right? And so that's been what he's saying. He said, don't worry about me. And then it gets to chapter 2, and he says, so, therefore, right? So I'm not worried, but there's one thing left that will complete my joy, Right, so Paul's saying, I'm not worried, I'm not upset. The only thing that I'm really worried about, the only thing that's going to make me complete is this. Right, that you are to be of one heart and one mind. He was worried, he was more worried about their, their unity than he was about anything else. You know, in, in, uh, in other books of the Bible, Paul, when he's writing, he, gets, he tells them, make sure you get your doctrine right. Make sure you know what you're believing and stick to the truth. To the Corinthians, he tells them, stop behaving badly. You're all being naughty. You're all just doing things that you shouldn't do. In Philippi, for the church in Philippi, there wasn't those problems, right? They weren't doing bad things. They weren't necessarily having bad doctrine. But the thing that he worried about for them was that they would be unified. And isn't it interesting? In fact, sometimes I wonder if it's in churches where there is good, solid doctrine and people are behaving right, that often disunity can creep in. And that's a real warning and a message to us as a church that even though, and I really believe this, that we do treat, teach the Bible here, yeah, and we do teach the truth, and we are people that are you know, holy and upright, but we need to be aware that just like the Church of Philippi, we too are vulnerable to being called or being distracted and becoming disunified. And this is the challenge to the church this morning. So... <clears throat> We need to be, and we're going to look at this in a minute, we're going to need to be of one mind. And so what is the kind of unity that Paul is talking about in chapter 2? What is the kind of unity that Paul's talking about? Now there's, you know, you can say that you're unified. I don't know if any of you follow the news, right? I read the news. And this week, Theresa May has been telling everybody, right, that her government is united, right? The Conservative Party, I've got one mind apparently, Right? And they're focused on delivering an excellent Brexit. Right? The very fact that she's having to tell us that means that that's not true. Yeah? Right? Or probably not true. Yeah? The fact that they're all arguing with each other right, is an indication of that kind of stuff, you see. Um, I remember being a teacher and I used to manage a department and I, had a, I was one of the departments I managed was the design and technology department. Right? And they were very good at, you know, the kids never knew, but they hated each other, right? Okay? And they would literally, they'd teach a lesson uh, and they would have to share resources and they would come to me and moan constantly about each other. Look good on the surface, underneath it, there was no unity, right? That is, I, I, this just amused me. I don't know if you remember, a few months ago, about maybe a year or so ago, there was something called the G7 Summit. Here's a lovely picture of all the world leaders looking very united. But this photo came out. I don't know if you remember this photo, right? 
Right, do you remember that photo? It's, it's Donald Trump and Angela Merkel bearing down on him. Right, clearly, there is not unity, is there? Right, that doesn't look like a picture of people that are really on the same page. Right, it doesn't matter. You see, the thing is, is that we can have something that looks like unity but isn't unity. Right, because this is the thing, right, this is a key point I want to get to. Unity is internal first before it's external. If you try and create unity without internal unity, what you get is something called uniformity, right? Where it looks the same, people might dress the same, they might say the same, but it's not really unity. How many of us have sat in church meetings, right, where there's been a question, is everybody agreed? And everyone kind of goes, <clears throat> yeah, yeah, we're all agreed, but everybody knows that nobody's really agreed, yeah? Right, there might be agreement, but there's not unity. There might be uh, uniformity, it might look the same, but there's no unity. Paul isn't talking about everybody needs to say exactly the same and do exactly the same. He's talking about a much deeper level of unity that he's trying to bring us to. And it's summed up in this phrase. I'll come back to that. <clears throat> it's summed up in this phrase. Be of one mind. And Paul uses the phrase be of the same mind three or four times in this passage. That's his way of saying you need to be of the same heart. Now, what does it mean to be minded the same? Now, uh, Chris and I met up right, for, for dinner this week, right? We, haven't, we you know, hadn't got together for a while, so we said, let's get together, right? Now, you know, we, we said, well, do we want to go out for food or for, you know, uh, or, or should we go out just to get a drink somewhere? And uh, we said, let's get food. Uh, and Chris unsurprisingly suggested, right, let's go to the flavour of India. And we, him and I were of the same mind, right? We were in agreement, not just in agreement, because we thought to ourselves, I'm hungry, where do we want to go and eat food? What do we like doing, right? We want to eat curry, where's the place to eat curry around here? One star, right? Or no, no star, right? Okay. If you went out today, you walked outside, your mind, it's not like an intellectual thing. We are of the same mind. We agreed intellectually. It's like your whole sense. You know, you say, I was minded to do something. Yeah, it's like everything in you is just kind of geared towards doing something. It's if there was no restraint and if no one was telling you what to do, if there weren't pressures, it's what you would naturally do. Yeah, it's like you, it's what you're minded to do. And so Paul is saying, I want the church to be to that point where they're all their hearts are all for the same thing. They're all minded to behave in the same way. They're all minded to do the same thing. Now, that is not the kind of unity that's very easily achieved, is it? Right? You go and work in a secular organisation. It isn't like that often. Very rarely, in fact, do you find groups of people are minded to do the same. But that's what's so amazing about the church right? Because the church is one of those few places where this really can happen. So Paul moves on then and he says in, in verse 1, he lays the foundations for this kind of unity. And if you read verse 1 and verse 2 says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. He's laying down the foundations of unity. This is the foundation on which unity, true unity, is built. It's built on this, right? That we know Christ. What's more encouraging in our hearts than we know and that we are in Christ? It says we have comfort from love. When you know that Jesus loves you, it changes everything. 
It changes the way that you see the world. It changes the way you're seeking to try and address things. We need to participate in the spirit. There's a oneness of spirit that where we feel like somebody is our brother and sister, even though they are not from their same blood family. Affection and sympathy. There's an affection and a tenderness that flows from our relationship with Christ. You see, Paul is saying that you, the foundation of unity, is not natural, it's spiritual. The foundation of unity, of true unity, doesn't come from saying, well, I like you. That's not the basis. I don't like John very much, but we get on. No, I'm joking. Right? Yeah? But I could find John difficult, but it doesn't matter because these are the things that unite us. John and I are both in Christ. We both know that God loves us. We are in both in the Spirit together. And so that affection and sympathy means that we are drawn together. You see, when you, if you try and have unity, right, out of a natural effort, you will fail. It is a supernatural bonding. That is the foundation of unity. And if we want unity in this church, it comes, as Paul is saying, from a spiritual basis. It's our Christian experience that brings us to that. So Paul then moves on and says, okay, if this is the foundation of unity, what's the ultimate idea? What are we going for when it comes to unity? What's the ultimate ideal for unity? And it's this. So he says, complete my joy, being of the same mind. There's that phrase, be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Again, the phrase mind appears twice there, you see. Right? I don't know about you, but it's hard to have the same love without Jesus, isn't it? Right? There's a few of us in here that love cycling. There's a few of us, Hannah, that don't, right? We don't necessarily share the same love in the natural, right? We might be minded, right? Pat and I, Pat wants to organise a trip, right, next year to do cycling. Pat and I are not of the same mind on what we should do, right? I submit to Pat and let him do what he wants to do and I'll go go along, right? But we are not naturally of the same mind. But in the spirit, the Lord wants to bring us to this place where our hearts and our minds are the same. That is not easy, is it? Is that just me? No? No, just me? I don't find that very easy, right? Okay, but this is what Paul wants to bring us to. Whereas a church, when, when someone says, I don't know, someone says, right, I think we should give money to this, this charity or to these people, these missionaries, and as one heart and one mind, we say yes, because we are in the spirit together. When we see someone in need, we're not just saying, oh, so-and-so deals with it. That's their problem. No, our heart is one. And that is amazing. That's not the kind of thing that you can achieve just by kind of saying, well, let's have more church meetings. It doesn't work. Right? It's this idea that Paul is saying that you and I are to be of the same mind, same heart. Isn't this just wonderful? Right? I've heard a phrase right, that Christians are a bit like snowflakes. Right? That's a modern phrase, isn't it? Snowflake. Right? Right? Snowflakes are frail, but when they stick together, they can grind traffic to a halt. And that's what we are when we're of the same mind. There's amazing things that happen in the church when the church is unified. And it's not the kind of just, oh, we agree, but we're something deeper. And I don't know if you noticed when I was reading it, um, 
The, the Tenzig, Norges, uh, Tenzig Norgay said this, you do not climb a mountain like Everest trying to race ahead on your own or by competing. You do it slowly and carefully by unselfish teamwork. You see, the thing is, is that that's why Paul, you know, in Corinthians chapter, I want to say 12, but I might be wrong. I think it might be 12. I think it is. Where he talks about the body, right? And, you know, at the end of the day, my thumb right, doesn't think exactly the same as my little toe right, or my big toe. But they are all of the same mind. We want to get over there. Right? Or we want to get to the cakes at the end of the meeting. Right? That's what's going to be saying. Right? They might be thinking it differently, but that's where they're all thinking. And we're different, but we have the same mind and the same heart. This is what Christ wants for the church. However, Paul then says, that this is what I want for you. I want you to be complete my joy by being of one mind and one heart. This is what it looks like when the church is really unified. But, oh no, I put that quite up there. But, there are obstacles, as we see. Paul immediately turns to the obstacles. All right, the obstacles to unity. What are the things that get in their way? And we're going to see, I think, in the first thing is this, self-importance. And verse 3 says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count, yourself, uh, count others more significant than yourself. All right? I don't know about you, right, but I am, one of my weaknesses is that I am prone to feeling slightly more self-important than I ought, right? That's one of my weaknesses. And we can have this sense of somehow we are more special or more important than other people. And it happens all the time in church. Let's not pretend it doesn't, right? So you could be a musician, right, and this is no criticism of the musicians in our church, and you could say to yourself, as, as I'm sure Pat does, right, and he feels, I know Pat feels very repressed in the music area. He'd love to sing and bless us with his voice, right? But he could say, I think my voice is superior to the others. I should sing every week because my voice is superior, right? Amen, oh, that's right, Pat, right? Yeah, and you could say, I, do you know what? I'm really important. Amen, oh, I feel I should have more prominence because I'm, I've really got the gift. But, you know, we can also express this self-importance, not just individually, but as a group, right? So you can say, uh, not just our, you know, me is, I, I'm more important, but we are more important. You could say things like, our music group is, is slamming, right? Our, group, our music group is the best music group in the whole area. What we need to do is produce an album, right? Because we are amazing, right? And that is the problem, right? There are, and, and you know, this, this works itself out in a number of ways, right? Um, as a preacher, I could say, you know, I am, I, I could preach for all the recognition, the status and the sense of self-importance it gives me, right? As an individual, I can, you know, self-importance, I'm a great preacher. I'm not, by the way, right? But you know what you see is as a group, you get some preachers that are like, I'm in the reformed category, right? Or I'm in the conservative evangelical category. Or I'm in the charismatic category. I've got the right theology. And what they do is they think that somehow that their group is more important than any other group and that they have got more truth or more, a greater handle on the truth than anybody else. It's just self-importance, right? What about this? I've seen people do this in prayer. There are some people, and hopefully there's not anybody here, but I know there are some people that feel that their prayer, when they pray, they've really got it, right? They can pray more eloquently, they can pray more powerfully. When they pray, Jesus is really listening. When you're praying, he's kind of maybe listening, right? But when, he, when they're praying, he really moves, the spirit moves when I pray, right? And there are people that feel like that, right? Or we could have, a, and, and we could be arrogant as a group, and we could say, well, our church, 
we're more committed to prayer than any other church in the area. We have six o'clock in the morning prayer meetings and we have evening prayer meetings and we have ladies prayer meetings. If we added up the number of hours of prayer in our church, we could say that we are by far the best prayers in the whole area, right? It's just self-importance. And self-importance is the thing that will stop unity. If you and I think that we are more important than other people, if you think your cakes are better, right, or if you think that your house is better, or the way that you do things is better, ultimately you're undermining true unity. You're undermining that unity. And there's a real challenge for us in there. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but consider others more significant than yourself. So that's the first one. The second is this. This is a bit more subtle, and I think we, we all fall into this at some point or another. Right? Self-interest. It says in, what's it say in verse 4? So we've moved from verse 3 to verse 4. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. How often does someone suggest something in the church and you say, well... I'm going to filter that through this lens, right? I'll filter this through this, this process of how does it affect me? You know, is this what I want to do? Right? Will I benefit from that? Right? Those are often the kind of questions that we ask, right? Because what we're doing is we're saying, hmm, my world is defined not by what others want, but what I, by what I want. Right? It's self-interest. Let each of you not look to your own interest. Paul is saying if you want this kind of unity, you can't look to your own interests. Right? I was really blessed. A couple of months ago, we got together, didn't we, uh, with the house group leaders. Um, and we basically said to them, uh, we're going to change things. We're doing it a bit differently. Now, it would have been very easy for some of the people in that room to have said, well, that means I don't get to do my Bible study. Yeah? It could have been very easy for people in that room to say, well, I don't like what you've suggested, Tim and Pat, right? And your li- this leadership team, what do you know? You don't understand, that's not what I want to do, that's not what I need. But you know, I was incredibly blessed because what came out of that meeting, wasn't it, was a heart that said, I'm not putting my own interests at the top of the priority list, I'm actually looking to the interests of others. You know, and if we want the kind of church that has the true kind of unity, we need to have the the willingness to lay down self-interest. So Paul's then given us, isn't he? He's given us the, the foundation of unity. He's given us the ideal of unity. He's given us the objects, objects to unity. But then he really starts to roll it out, right? Okay, and this is where Pat's going to get really excited, right? Because verse 5 says, what does verse 5 say? Have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus. He's basically saying, if you want to see true unity, right? If you want to know what real unity comes from, look at Jesus. Have the mind of Jesus, right? And, you know, we have to be careful, I think, when we we think about Jesus, because sometimes, anyone anyone ever own one of those WWJD bands? What would Jesus do bands? You ever remember those? Yeah? Right? The problem is with the WWJD bands is that they imply that somehow our job is to copy Jesus, right? But you and I don't need to copy Jesus. Why don't we need to, why shouldn't we be copying Jesus? Because, why? Because Jesus is already within us. Jesus isn't somebody that we're trying, like a great scholar or a great philosopher that we're trying to emulate, right, or a great man. Jesus lives within us. 
That's what verse 1 of this chapter is saying. If there is any encouragement in Christ, you're already in Christ. The secret of the Christian life isn't trying to copy Jesus, it's letting out Jesus from within you. It's letting out what's already put within you. Right? You, don't, you have the mind of Christ already. The truth is you're probably not allowing it space in your life. And this is what Paul is saying to you this morning. You have to, if we want to be minded like, we, if we want to be of the same mind, we have to be of Jesus' mind. Have you ever thought about this, right? You can have a thousand pianos, right? Not that any of us can, well, not, well Hannah can play piano, but not many of us can play piano. Ruth apparently can play piano, right? And Helen, grade five. Go on, Helen, right? <clears throat> but you know what's amazing about pianos? Is that if you play a piano, they all, and they're all in tune, they could all play at the same time and be in tune. Why can lots of different things all play the same notes and sound the same? Because they're all tuned to the same thing. They're all tuned to middle C, right? And this is the thing that, Lord, that, that Paul is saying, if really the secret of unity is coming and tuning yourself to Jesus Christ and looking at his example, and if you weren't already like um, thinking, oh, this is a tough call, then you really, it's really, when you look at Christ's example, there's no escape. Right? There's no escape, because then Paul starts to really open up. Right? And if we look at verse 6, 7 and 8, Paul just gets going on Jesus. Right? And he says this, he says, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count it as equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If we want to have the mind of Christ, it starts with really looking at Jesus. And what's really interesting is that this is, what you see is Paul showing the self-humiliation of God. The self-humiliation. It's not just, you know, you and I can be humiliated because we make a mistake or someone picks on us. Jesus chose to humiliate himself. It is a self-humiliation. And what we see is the stepping downwards Right, the descent of Christ in these verses. So it says, though he was in the form of God, though he could have been equal to God, he chose not to take it. Then what does he do? He empties himself, but he keeps going. He says, taking the form of a servant, going down further still. He becomes like men. That's, you know, we think we're important, but for God to become like us, wow, that's just God descending. He humbled himself becoming obedient to the point of death. And this is where it gets to the lowest point, even death on a cross. Do you see what Jesus did? Jesus was up there and he comes down and down and down and down and down. He went from God to man to slave to criminal. That was the choice that Jesus made. You know, if, and, and what Paul's saying is this is the essence of unity. It's not in seeking your own interest. It's not in valuing yourself as being important. It's becoming like Christ. And here's a real challenge for you and I this morning. Are we willing to follow that path? Are we willing to keep humbling ourselves and humbling ourselves and humbling ourselves to the point where there's nothing left? Because that's what true unity is built on. You know, one of this, this verse says at the top, let's go, go back to this, this bit here. It says, he was in the form of God, but did not count it as equality with God, as something to be grasped. 
You know, so many of us in life are grasping, are grabbing. You know, I'm trying to grab for, for what's mine. I've got to make sure that I get what I'm owed. I've got my rights. I've got to take responsibility for what's mine. It's mine. You know, you just, I don't know if you've got kids. You've got kids. They're always obsessed about what's mine and about justice and about grasping. And if you and I want to move to a position where the, we are moving with one heart and one mind together, the only way to discover that is to come to the point where we do not grasp at things, but we let go of things. You this morning might feel like you are entitled to something. You are entitled to a position and you've earned it. And you may be absolutely right. You may have earned that position. But if you grasp a bit, you're doing the opposite to what Christ did. Christ let go of it. He, did, he was equal to God and he didn't see it as something to be grasped. He saw it as something to be let go of. You this morning may have been totally and utterly hurt, abused, rejected by somebody. And you're thinking, I've been hurt. I've got every right to be hurt. And maybe you do. But Christ said, I had every right to be hurt. I had every right to get upset. But I kept going down and down and down. And this is the essence. This is what Paul's great heart for the Philippians is. Complete my joy, guys. Complete my joy. Finish off. I'm happy as it is. But what will make me really happy is if you become like this. If this is your heart, you're not grasping at things. It's amazing, isn't it? You know, and we could stop at this point and we could just worship Jesus for the amazing kind of, just for the amazing God he is. But he goes on and he carries on and he says this. Therefore, let's not stop just at worship. Let's, then it's, this is it. Work it out. My beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation. Right, we can sit around this morning. We've got, I really need Jesus. How many of us responded this morning to that sense of the Lord in our lives? Lord, you're good. I'm struggling with stuff and you're good. You this morning have received a blessing, but the secret to the Christian life is this, work it out. You've got to go and work it out. And I tell you, there are people this morning that are not working out their salvation. They're wanting and relying on other people in the church to do the work for them. Right? You may be struggling this morning, but you have to work it out in the Lord. You may be thinking that you've been wrong this morning. You've got to work it out in the Lord. If we want to be one heart, one mind, we have to work it out. We can't just stop and worship. But we could have stopped at verse 11 and said, isn't the Lord wonderful? Let's just worship the Lord. Paul says, no, no. Therefore, right, we're moving on. Therefore, work it out. Work it out, guys. And how do we work it out? Do all things without grumbling and complaining. Ruth just smiled, right? Ruth just chuckled to herself. Do all things without grumbling and complaining, right? I'll be honest, I'm fairly certain I've grumbled and complained already this morning, right? You could come in and you could have come through the door and you could have said, oh, Steve wasn't very welcoming this morning on the door. You know, he didn't shake my hand properly and then we march up to the coffee, we take our coffee. Today there's no, there's no, there's no Bourbons today, only custard creams. I'm not interested in custard creams. I want Bourbons, thank you very much. Right, you drink the coffee, oh dear, this coffee's a bit bitter today, isn't it? Someone's obviously not made the coffee, it's been sat there too long. You come down here, oh, the music's too loud, so the guitar's out of tune, so-and-so prayed for too long, right, okay, and then Tim preached for too long, probably. Right, I was barely staying awake. Right, and you leave church, and you've spent your entire time grumbling and complaining about everything. Work it out. Work it out. If we want to be of one heart and one mind, we have to live it out, and that means not grumbling and complaining. So they'll have no one at the end of the sermon coming up and moaning about how long I was, thank you very much, right? We do all things without grumbling and complaining, because what's Paul's heart? 
that you would be of one mind. So let's just review, right, before we finish. Paul's heart, great heart for the church, was to be one. And we are one because we are in Christ. It's a spiritual thing. That's the foundation of unity. And what we're going for, the ideal, is that we have one heart, one mind, one love, in one accord. What stops us? Self-importance and self-interest. But how do we get past that? We get past that by bringing, allowing the life of Jesus to flow up within us, to come out of us. And then we have to work it out. We have to work it out without grumbling and complaining so that everyone will be helping after the meeting and no one will be complaining. I don't know about you. Do you want to be of one heart and one mind as a church? I do. I want to be part of that church. Right? And I think, do you know what? I'll be honest. I say this. I think we do a pretty good job. I think this is a really unified church as a rule. But this is, we're just reading through the passage. We're reading through the book and this stuff came up. It's not like I decided I think we need to speak on unity. There's issues in the church. But it's come up and it's a good reminder to us. And it's something we need to look at in our own hearts and our own lives this morning. Amen? Let's stand, shall we, and let's pray to finish.